0: peacekeepers welcome back to another episode of passions are peace podcast today we are going to be finishing up ted bundy and hopefully part three is going to be the only part because i am so tired of talking about this man and i do not want to give him any more time of my life so i believe part three will just hopefully be it i am crossing my fingers but like i had said in my previous episodes i just want all of the information to be as accurate as I can possibly present it, and there is so much information in this case, and I just want to make sure it's right. So before we begin, I want to do the usual disclaimers. Um, There is going to be mentions of violence and assault, and if you cannot handle that, please do not listen, or just try and skip ahead. That's the best advice i can give also if you hear any background noise my partner's out there playing video games as per usual it's been three weeks now i think you guys are catching on well at least i hope so but without further ado let's just get into this episode so we can stop talking about this pain in my ass after Bundy was taken to the police station, Officer Hayward let investigators know about his suspicions. Detective Ben Forbes and Jerry Thompson had then remembered that this man matched the description that was given by Carol DeRanche a year earlier. When Bundy had been in custody, the detective searched his apartment. They were able to find a ski brochure that had a checkmark by the Wildwood Inn where Karen Aileen Campbell went missing and a program that advertised the high school play in Bountiful where Deborah Kent went missing as well as credit card receipts that can place Bundy at the resort the same time Karen was there. Although police found this evidence, they were super suspicious, but unfortunately, they did not have sufficient evidence to hold Bundy. He was then released and put on 24-hour surveillance. After Bundy was released, police departments came to the conclusion that they needed to share information with one another. They tried to find a pattern with all the disappearing women, so authorities from Washington, Oregon, Colorado, and Utah all met up at the Four Seasons in Aspen. They were able to find similarities between all the victims and were able to tell that Bundy was the top suspect. Unfortunately, they could not find sufficient evidence to charge and hold Bundy for the murders. In October of 1975, Bundy was identified in a lineup by Carol Durant, De despite him trying to change up his appearance. He cut his hair and parted it on the opposite side. Bundy was charged with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault of Carol Duranche. Two other witnesses were able to identify him as well. They had recognized him from the school play where Deborah Kent disappeared. Bundy was held in Salt Lake City County Jail. but was released on a $15,000 bond. While he awaited his trial, he spent time with Liz and her daughter. Then on February 23, 1976, the trial began. Ted was quick to turn the case into a platform, and he loved all the attention he was getting. Bundy had a lot of people backing him up while he was on the while he was on trial. For example, some coworkers he had a cr- at the Crisis Center and as well as members of the Latter-day Saints Church. Unfortunately, there was many young women who thought he was super attractive and they could not believe that he would commit these crimes, so they were basically groupies for him and they would go to court just to see him. How disrespectful, right? Bundy continued to toy with the press. He gave interviews and spoke openly to them. His lawyer gave him the, his lawyer gave him the advice to not have a trial by jury, but to have one single judge decide his fate. When Ted was called by the defense to testify, Ted had an attitude with the defense. He was cocky and arrogant, and he made it known that he was confident, and he knew that he had these people around his finger. On March 1, 1976, Judge Hansen convicted Bundy. He was sentenced to 1 to 15 years at the Utah State Prison. When Bundy entered the prison, he was given a 90-day psychological evaluation to determine if he would qualify for probation. Dr. Carlisle concluded that Bundy was a danger to society and claimed it was safer for Bundy to remain incarcerated. On October 21, 1976, Bundy was serving his sentence for the attack on Carol Duranche, but he was also convicted for the murder of Karen Campbell in Colorado. He had become a lead suspect as soon as a brochure was found in his home. Utah police contacted Colorado authorities, who were then able to find gas receipts that could prove Bundy was around the inn at the time of Karen's disappearance. An eyewitness was able to come forward and claim that she had seen Bundy on the elevator at the Wildwood Inn the exact same day Karen had gone missing. In January of 1977, Bundy was extradited to Aspen, Colorado. As soon, as he was charged for Karen Campbell's murder. June 7, 1977, Ted was taken to a county courthouse in Aspen for a hearing. Ted had decided to serve as his own lawyer, although he never finished law school. Because Ted was serving as his own attorney, he was given a lot of unusual freedoms, such as not having to wear handcuffs and was able to use the courthouse library whenever he pleased. Bundy had us to visit the library to help his defense. When he arrived, he found a bookcase away from the guard's view and and opened a window. Keep in mind that this man is not handcuffed and roaming free and he is literally being charged for murder. Whack. He then jumped 25 feet out of a second story window onto the ground. He sprained his right ankle, but this did not stop him. He removed the clothes he had been wearing and sped away through the city. This raised hell with the authorities and roadblocks had been set up to check every car. Although they did not find Bundy, they confiscated a shitload of marijuana. I think it was like 200 pounds or some sort of crazy amount, but I'm pretty sure they were real real proud of themselves for confiscating that much weed. But they still didn't catch Bundy. When the officer who was supposed to be watching him was asked where Bundy was, he replied with, It's not my turn to watch him. Like, what the hell, dude? It's not my turn? What are we, 12? This is your job. He is on trial for murder and you're not gonna watch him. (laughs) Oh, this part made me want to punch a window. Bundy had been planning his escape for weeks. He spent a lot of time jumping off the top bunk in his jail cell to strengthen his legs for the impact of landing on the ground. He would also practice changing his clothes as quickly as possible. And I think a lot of people forget that this man was a criminal and then they just let him do whatever he wanted. Let him roam freely and be a maniac because he was smart and supposedly charming And people just... I don't want to say were really wrapped around his finger, but unfortunately, they were. Bundy fled toward the mountains where he found a cabin and stole food, clothes, and a gun. Bundy Bundy wandered around for days when a huge storm came in and really tested his physical and mental strength. This proved to be too much, so he headed back to Aspen just to see what was going to happen. He literally just headed back just so he could, quote, see what was going to happen. What did he think was going to happen? Bunny then found an unlocked car with keys in the ignition and drove out of town, but was pulled over for driving erratically. And I'm pretty sure this is like the third time in his life that he's been pulled over for not driving correctly. And you'd think he'd learn by now to just drive in the lines and stop being so... Uh, suspicious Just six days after his escape Bundy was arrested again He lost a lot of weight And he just looked really rough Bundy was now back in custody At Glenwood Springs Bundy was told by friends and family To wait out his prison sentence After all, he only had to do a year But arrogant, Bun- arrogant Bundy Attempted to escape once again he had gotten a hold of a hacksaw blade from another inmate as well as $500 cash, mostly from Carol Ann Boone. While everyone was asleep, Bundy would stay awake and use the hats- hacksaw to make a one square foot hole in the cell's ceiling. Ted had lost 35 pounds and made sure that he could fit through the hole. Most staff had gone home On the night of december 30th 1977 for the holiday this led ted to stack a pile of books on his bunk and slide through the hole in the ceiling before leaving he filled his bed with books and pillows and covered them with a blanket to make it look like he was sleeping and what a wild coincidence that above bundy's cell there was an apartment where a guard lived the guard was not home due to the holiday so bundy went through the ceiling and stole some clothes He then walked right out the front door and into the night. He then stole a car and headed east. The car broke down, but Bundy was able to hitch a ride with somebody who took him 60 miles east. From Vail, he got on a bus to Denver and then caught a flight to Chicago. No one discovered Bundy was gone until around noon on New Year's Eve. By the time they realized he was gone, Bundy had arrived in Chicago from Chicago, Ted went to Michigan. He stayed in Michigan for less than a week, then stole another car and headed south for Atlanta. He was in Atlanta for about a day and then took a bus to Tallahassee, and he arrived there on January 8, 1978. Back at the jail, police were going crazy, calling all of his friends and family and threatening them with arrest if they knew anything about where Bundy was. Bundy then stated he Bundy then stated he headed to Florida because he believed the, the weather would be good for the little supplies he had with him. It was at this time that Cled It was at this time that Ted claimed he wanted to stop with the murders, but unfortunately, this did not happen. January 15, 1978, it was about 2 a.m. when Bundy entered the Chi Omega sorority house on the Florida State University campus. It is said that he got in through a back door because it had a faulty lock. He carried a piece of oak firewood from the pile he had found outside the house. Bundy entered a room and bashed the skull of Margaret Elizabeth Bowman, who was only 21. He also strangled her with a nylon stocking. He had pulled it with so much force that it is said he almost broke her neck. Twenty-year-old Lisa Levy was in the next room. Bundy entered the room and beat her until she fell unconscious. She was found by police alive but with no pulse. She passed away on the way to the hospital. Bundy had strangled her and almost tore off one of her nipples. He bit her on her left buttock and sexually assaulted her with a hairspray bottle. Twenty-one-year-old Karen Ann Chandler and twenty-one-year-old Kathy Kleiner were Bundy's next victims. They had shared the room. Bundy used the log to break Kathy's jaw and deeply lacerated her shoulder. He then beat Karen so severely, she she suffered from a concussion, a broken jaw, and a crushed finger, as well as losing several teeth. Bundy noticed a car pulling up and its lights shone through the window. Luckily, the girls had left their blinds open. Bundy panicked and fled the scene. Both Kathy and Karen survived the attack Bundy had caused all this chaos in 15 minutes. After leaving the sorority house, Ted broke into another woman's apartment eight blocks away, 21-year-old Cheryl Thomas, a student at Florida State University. Bundy woke up all of her neighbors with all of the violence he inflicted on her. She suffered from bad head wounds, multiple skull fractures, a broken jaw, and her shoulder was dislocated. She survived but suffered with permanent hearing loss, and cranial nerve damage. Kimberly Leach, who was 12 years old, was seen being led away from her junior high school by a man. Nobody reported this because they believed it was her father. When her actual father stated it was not him, police were called. Kimberly had been sexually assaulted and strangled. Her body was found eight weeks later next to a hog pin at a state park. On February 15, 1978, at 1.34 a.m., David Lee, a patrolman, noticed a suspicious car loitering and driving erratically. The officer ran the plates and discovered the car was stolen. Bundy refused to give his name and resisted arrest. Lee was able to arrest him. Back at the police station, Bundy gave officers a stolen ID and said he was a student, he was a student at Florida State University. He had 21 stolen credit cards, which raised suspicion with the police. Bundy had told police that his name was Kenneth Meisner. The media loved this story and broadcasted it everywhere. So when the real Kenneth Meisner saw saw this, he told police. Bundy finally gave his true identity and decided to represent himself once again. Bundy finally began to break when the police had traced the stolen VW Bug to a place near the Chi Omega sorority house. Under the pressure, Bundy finally cracked and said he would give his name for a phone call to Liz. June of 1978, Bundy was tried for the murders of Margaret Bowman, Lisa Levy, and the attempted murders of Cheryl Thomas, Kathy Kleiner, and Karen Chandler. This was the first trial to be televised in the US, so of course Bundy thought he was a big deal and how I can't understand why they would choose this trial because of course it was just gonna make him big headed even though he is already super big headed. Bundy once again was allowed to represent himself. Bundy decided to propose to Carol Ann Boone while he was questioning her. In October of 1981, Carol gave birth to a daughter and she claimed Bundy was the father. There were five lawyers on Bundy's public defense team. These five lawyers had tried to secure a pre-trial plea deal where if Bundy pleaded guilty to killing Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman as well as Kimberly Leach, he would avoid the death penalty and receive a 75-year prison sentence. Bundy, of course, refused to plead guilty, so the trial continued. There were two witnesses, Connie Hastings and Nita Nyer. Connie stated that she saw Bundy at the sorority house the evening of the attacks, and Nita testified that she saw Bundy leaving with the murder weapon. Prosecutors brought great evidence such as impressions of the bite mark Bundy had left on Lisa Levy's left buttock. They enlarged the photo and showed the jury, and the prosecution was able to get a forensic dentist to testify. They were able to match the bite marks to the castings that were made of Bundy's teeth. The sheriff at the time states that he went to Ted's cell in the middle of the night, put him in the back of the van, there was a dentist chair, and they got the castings of his teeth. On July 24, 1979, Bundy was found guilty of murdering Lisa Levy, Margaret Bauman, and the attempted murders of Kathy Kleiner, Karen Chandler, and Cheryl Thomas. One week later, he was sentenced to death for the murders. The judge had said to Ted, quote, you would have been a very good attorney. I would have been privileged to have you practice in front of me. And when I heard what the judge had said to Ted, it kind of pissed me off because I was like, wow, could you have sucked him off any harder than you did? It, he was Ted Ted Bundy was already arrogant, he was already big headed, you know, he thought he was the shit and here are this judges saying like, Oh, you would have been this great lawyer if you would have not have done this instead of making his final words to Bundy about what a piece of shit he was for doing this to these poor women or taking away you know, he said, I would have been I would have been privileged to have you practice in front of me. But Did he ever stop to think about, wow, what are these victims' parents going to think when I'm over here jacking Bundy off in front of everybody and these poor victims' families have to sit here and listen to the judge praise this monster? I don't know. It just, everything about this case pisses me off. In January of 1980, Bundy was found guilty of Kimberly Leach's kidnapping and murder and was sentenced to death. Ted's, Ted's execution had been set for January 24, 1989. Many complained that his appeals made him live a longer life than he deserved. On January 21, 1989, Bundy had confessed to various law enforcement agents that he had killed 30 people in California, Oregon, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, and Florida between 1973 to 1978. Before Bundy's death, he had blamed porn for his actions, his abusive grandfather, his mother lying to him about who his biological father really was, alcohol, the media, society, etc., Bundy refused his request for a last meal. And people celebrated his execution. They had signs like, burn Bundy, burn, crank up old Sparky, reserved for Ted Bundy, have a seat, Ted, public public execution now, I like to watch, Teddy, you're the toast with the most, the shocking truth, it's toast Teddy time. And people turned this event into a party. Apparently, they even, like, had a cookout and it was this really big event. Bundy's last words were, Jim and Fred, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. I think I got that backwards. It's, I'd like you to give my love to my friends and family. Which, what a dick. He could have spent his last few words saying, oh, I'm sorry for being such a piece of shit. But really, he's worried about his family and friends rather giving the rather giving the families closure. But I'm sure he's having a good time with Satan. Well, I hope he's not having a good time with Satan. But I hope Satan is having a good time punishing This piece of shit for all the bullshit he did. There were 42 spectators watching. Some included victim's friends and family. January 24th, 1989. 2,000 volts of electricity were set through Bundy's body. And he was pronounced dead at 7.16am. And thank the Lord that that is the ending of that. Because I was so tired of discussing this piece of shit. (laughs) i hope you guys enjoyed i hope i did this story justice um i want to thank you guys for listening for staying and keeping up with me for all three parts you guys are awesome next week i think i don't know if i'm gonna give you guys a spoiler of who i'm gonna do but he is a one demented individual and i almost threw up like 12 times researching his case So it takes a lot to make me want to throw up. So if that doesn't say something, then I think you guys are going to be real scared. But thank you for listening. And remember that you can find this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts such as Spotify, Apple, uh, Stitcher, TuneIn, and there's a few other ones, but I always forget to mention them. Uh, If you want to keep up with me, and the podcast there is an instagram and a twitter at passions or peace podcast um if you want to see me do A, Q&A maybe on youtube you can go ahead and subscribe to the channel at passions or peace podcast and i'm not sure if i want to create a facebook group yet uh, but i do want to kind of create a community where you guys can come in discuss the case and just be friends and hopefully maintain peace with one another and Find new friends because internet friends are the best. Hmm, am I missing anything? You guys can add me on Snapchat, CindyMarie1116. And I think that is everything. I will have my personal Instagram tagged into the podcast Instagram. If you guys want to come give me a follow there, I would love to chat with you guys. And, oh, I forgot, if you have any suggestions or if you know anybody who would like to be on our Monday segment where we talk about different passions, um, or if you want to be on the show, you can go ahead and send me a Gmail at passionsorpeace at gmail.com. It would be really kick-ass to have some of the fans on the show, and I would love to interview you and figure out what makes you guys happy. So, I think that is everything. We will see you next week. Remember to stay passionate, take care of one another, keep the peace out there, and you guys have all my love and support. See ya!